How does what we believe impact the way we live? Whether we're a Christian person or not, what effect do the truths that we hold most dear have on what we do day to day? Should faith even make a difference? Or is it more a kind of personal preference that has little effect um, on our lives in the real world? The relationship between faith and works is a question that's always puzzled Christians. Perhaps it's puzzled you. How should my faith impact my life? Does it really matter how I live if I'm saved by Jesus? Anyway, maybe you're not yet a Christian believer, but the question still puzzles you. You think, does God care more about what I believe or how I live? If I were to become a Christian, would I do that by changing my life or by changing uh, what, what I think and believe? Our reading this morning is a bit like a tapestry with two threads woven all the way through it, the threads of faith and works. And this morning we're going to try to pick those two threads apart before bringing them back together again. And hopefully that will help us to understand this puzzle at the heart of the Christian faith. What is the relationship between what we believe and how we live? But first of all, let's just remember where we are in the story in John's Gospel. Uh, Nicodemus, remember him, he's that respected Jewish teacher who wants to figure out Jesus. Is Jesus the Messiah, Nicodemus is wondering. But Jesus immediately puts the spotlight back onto Nicodemus. He says, I am the Messiah, I am the Savior, but I'm not the rescuer you're expecting. Are you ready for the kingdom of God, Nicodemus? That's the subject of verses 1 to 15. And then from verse 16 onwards, John um, comments on this encounter, and he expands our horizons from this one man, Nicodemus, to the world. And he weaves those threads of faith and works together to help us understand how different people respond to Jesus, both in what they believe and in how they live. Each thread contains a vital lesson about either the present or the future. So first of all, only faith in the saving Son can secure our eternal salvation. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Uh, I've, I've used that picture of a tapestry. Another picture that might help us is that of a mirror or perhaps of an old-fashioned photograph and its negative. Because again and again through this passage, John presents us with one image that reflects another. The contrast between the positive and the negative image makes the truths that he's communicating stand out. You see that in these first two verses. God gave his Son to the world so that whoever believes may not perish, verse 16. God did not send him to condemn but to save, verse 17, two sides, two mirror images. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to, to know what um, an envoy, somebody who's sent by somebody else, really wants to achieve. It's a bit hard to know, isn't it? What is David Frost and Michel Barnier, what are their objectives when they're going back and forth, sent back and forth between London and Brussels? Uh, do they want a positive result for the UK or the EU? Do, are they happy to settle for a more negative result? What is a positive result anyway? But we don't need to be in any doubt about the purpose of John's mission, Jesus' mission. It was intended to have 
positive results, the salvation of sinners. Remember, the world in John's gospel isn't the world in all its loveliness and beauty. It's the world in all its ugliness, rebellion against its creator. Jesus didn't come into a morally neutral world, but an evil world deserving judgment. And yet he came the first time not to condemn, but to save. That's clear in that word, gave. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Do you know, this is the only time in John's gospel that that John says God gave Jesus. Everywhere else it says God sent him. And what's more, everywhere else John tells us that God loves his son. But here he tells us God loves the world. Well, that is extraordinary. God put the well-being of his son above the well-being, sorry, he put the well-being of the world above the well-being of his son. He gave his dearly loved, obedient son to die because he could not stop loving an unlovely, ugly, rebellious world he'd made. Jesus was sent to save. But how can we secure that salvation for ourselves? How can we get hold of it? Verse 18, only by faith in the saving son. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Once again, John puts a mirror between two related ideas, a photograph and a negative on two sides of the same verse. On the one hand, whoever believes. On the other, whoever does not believe. It's no condemnation for the former, but certain condemnation for the latter. No shades of gray, no suspended judgment. And notice the way John puts it. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. It's as if he pictures us standing in the dock. God is the judge. All the evidence has been presented, and it all points towards our guilt. And we're not standing in a a neutral position before God. We're standing in a guilty, not right position before God. But the judge says, here's a way out. Here's my son. He's going to serve the sentence you deserve. I've given him to save you. But still, we choose not to accept the way out. And so we're condemned already, John says. So does God condemn us, or do we condemn ourselves? It's a bit of both, isn't it? If we choose not to believe in the saving son who came to deal with our guilt, then we still stand guilty in the dock. We're self-condemned, and yet we still face God's condemnation. That is why only faith in the saving son can secure our eternal salvation. What does that mean for us and for our world? Well, for a start, it means we must keep trusting Jesus alone. It's a simple lesson. Keep trusting Jesus alone. Any version of Christianity that says we must do something, certain things to be saved, is a dangerous lie. And that is not just for other denominations or other types of churches out there. It can easily find its way in here as well. Because there's a deadly instinct inside each one of our hearts that says, I want to do something to be saved. Whether that's our private devotional life, our reading the Bible, our praying, our attempts to change the way we live. Maybe it's our public worship, our attendance, or our serving, or our evangelism. We don't say it out loud, but subconsciously we can easily believe the lie. God saved me because I do those things. 
But we must remember, by nature, we are standing in the dock, guilty. Only faith in the saving Son can secure our eternal salvation. And that truth as well means that the world needs Jesus and no other saviour. God doesn't simply want sincere faith. He wants faith, son-centered faith. I met, um, it's called Abdul, the guy who runs the fish tacos food place out there. It's a really nice guy last week. Uh, He's a lovely Muslim guy. And I told him I was the vicar of this church and we spoke a little bit short, friendly conversation about faith. And I'd love that conversation to continue because we don't stand in the same place before God. Either we're in the dock, condemned already, or we're set free from condemnation. Jesus serving our sentence. Sincere faith can't save anyone. Only saving son-centered faith. But let's come back to this puzzle. Is it really as simple as that? Is it faith and nothing else? Surely my Christian faith should change the way I live. Surely there's a connection. Well, John's going to help us explore that in the second half of the passage. And, and what he does is he pulls that thread of works or that thread of deeds from the background to the foreground of the, of the tapestry. But it's quite a surprising picture because John's going to teach us that our faith is just as indispensable to our Christian lives as our faith. Uh, our works are just as indispensable to our Christian lives as our faith. And that is true whether we're Christian believers or not. So secondly, only coming to the light of the world can transform our lives in the present Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. You know, the crucial moment in any courtroom is when the the foreman stands up and says, guilty or not guilty. Everything else is leading up to that point. The sentence depends upon it. The verdict is the center. And it's the same thing here. The verdict is the center of John's argument. I think John is reminding us of Nicodemus. Do you remember when he came to visit Jesus? It was night. Of course, it was night. But it was nighttime in Nicodemus' heart. He'd begun to believe, but he still needed the light of the world to shine light into his heart. And Nicodemus represents all people And this verdict is God's final verdict on humanity. People love darkness instead of light. I wonder if we slightly recoil from such a, a damning indictment. Is that really a fair assessment of Nicodemus? Did he really love darkness? Wasn't he a good, upstanding, religious man? Or maybe we think of our own lives. Do I really love darkness? Maybe some people do. Terrorists or child abusers or fraudsters or gangsters or whoever else. But surely not me. Now, of course, we we don't always get things right. Sometimes we get things badly wrong in our lives. But don't we often say sorry? Don't we sometimes ask our friends to shed some light onto our lives so that we can turn away from our mistakes and try to be better people? We really love darkness. But here's the thing. John is speaking in absolute terms, not relative terms. It's not the flickering candles of of light we might shine into one another's lives, nor the shifting shadows of darkness that 
surround us in this world. It is much more like the brilliant blazing light of the sun and the deep endless darkness of a black hole. See, light is God revealing himself to the world in Jesus. And darkness is the world hiding from him. Do you remember as John wrote at the beginning of his gospel? In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. See, we try to overcome the light. We try to extinguish it. We naturally walk in the dark. We instinctively love darkness. Why is that? Look at verse 19 again. Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Now there's actually another because at the beginning of verse 20 which helps us understand this a bit more. Because their deeds were evil, because everyone who, hates, who does evil hates the light. So we don't just love the darkness because our deeds are evil. We love the darkness because we hate the light, because the light exposes our evil deeds. Apparently, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle once sent a telegram to 12 men of great virtue and standing in society. In it, he wrote, flee, all has been discovered. And within 24 hours, all 12 had left the country. Now, perhaps that story is not uh, true entirely, but it makes the point. We hate to be exposed. You think of the last time you were embarrassed. Embarrassment makes us blush. It makes us apologize profusely. It makes us um, avoid other people for a few hours or a few days, perhaps. But embarrassment passes, doesn't it, in in a few hours, a few days, a few weeks. What about shame, though? Shame, on the other hand, lasts much longer, doesn't it? Makes us feel sick in the pit of our stomach. We have that sense, I wish the ground would swallow me up. Shame is in a different league to embarrassment. But the shame we experience in our own kind of damaged relationships with one another is a picture of the much deeper shame that marks our relationship with God. Do you remember the question God said to Adam, where are you? Adam said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. You see, he was ashamed. He was exposed. And ever since that first excuse, men and women have been hiding from God in the darkness. Like Adam, we'd rather live as if we were God, deciding what's good and evil for ourselves. We'd prefer to live by the flickering little candles of our own light instead of the brilliant, blazing, sun-like light of God. You see, that is what makes our deeds evil. It's not where they fit on a scale of of goodness with like really good stuff up here and really evil stuff down here. See, even our best deeds are worthy of condemnation if they come from a heart that is hiding away in the darkness, away from the beautiful light of God. See, that is the reason this is the verdict. It's a sobering truth of the human condition. People loved darkness. We're not as evil as we could be, but every single part of our lives is touched by that darkness. And so even if we do our very best to change, we can't change who we fundamentally are, which means in the end we'll be exposed um, by the searching light of God. But despite that damning verdict, There's still hope. 
You see, just as the saving son secures our eternal salvation against all the odds, he can also transform our deeds in the present, despite the darkness at the center of our nature. So take a look at verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. See, this time John's mirror slightly changes the picture a little bit because instead of talking about good deeds as the opposite of evil deeds, which is what we might have expected, he describes someone who lives by the truth. Do you see that verse 21? Whoever lives by the truth doesn't say whoever does good deeds. He says whoever lives by the truth. It's his way of saying this is God's way of doing things living God's way, not just a few good works here and there, but a whole lifestyle lived in the presence of God. John isn't saying that this person has saved themselves by being exceptionally good. He's not talking about how someone goes from the darkness to the light. He's describing people in general in a moment of time. Some are practicing evil deeds, others are doing the truth. Some are hiding from the light, but others aren't hiding from the light. They're coming into the light. And John's mirror changes the picture in another way too. Because you know that the evildoer hides from God's light, hides their deeds from God's light, but the truth doer doesn't parade their deeds in the light. Instead, they are revealed as done in the sight of God. Or as um, another translation puts it, wrought in God. In other words, God is the one who does these things in you. He's the one working in the life of the truth doer. Think back again uh, to Nicodemus. He He said to Jesus, no one could do the things you're doing if God were not with him. He sees something extraordinary in Jesus' life and he wants to know how to explain it. But it's as if John turns Nicodemus' Nicodemus's question on its head and he asks the rest of us, what about you? What are you doing in your life? What explains the way you live? Because there are only two options, hiding in the dark or coming into the light. The former leaves us where we are by nature, hiding in our darkness, heading for a day when we'll be fully and finally and terribly exposed. The latter simply means putting our trust in Jesus, coming to him to learn how to live in the light. Because only coming to the light of the world can transform our lives in the present. Well, what is the connection between belief and deeds, faith and works? If I'm a Christian already, how can, I, how can what I believe affect the way I live? If I'm not a believer, how can I become one? Is it by doing certain things? Is it by changing what I believe? What's more important, faith or works? Well, if you had a beautiful Persian rug at home and then decided to pull all the threads apart, you wouldn't have a rug anymore. You'd have a mess. It's the same with this puzzle at the heart of Christianity. We can tease the threads apart in John's tapestry, but the truth is that they really belong together. Only faith in the saving son can secure our eternal salvation. When we realize who we are at heart, lovers of darkness, haters of light, there can be no other option, can there? He's the one 
who's got to save us. But if he saves us for eternity, then we will be changed in this life. Because when we come to the light of the world, he will transform our deeds in the present. So what would you say is God's verdict on you and me today? Which of John's mirrors, if you like, is shining light into our lives? Uh, near the end of his life, John the Apostle wrote to a friend of his who'd, who'd learnt these lessons we've been hearing today. He wrote this in 3 John verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God could say those things about you and me and of our church? No greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Should we have a moment of quiet? And then I'll lead us in prayer. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they've done has been done in the sight of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for telling us what we're like in our hearts. But thank you for giving us hope. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to be the light of the world, not only to save us, but also to change us. Father, we pray that we might be people who, who do that, who walk in his light and who live by the truth. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.